Our scripture passage today comes from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes, and he was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Ashley. Uh, Good morning. Uh, My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Uh, This fall, we're going to be looking at the life of David in 1 and 2 Samuel. And those passages of Scripture, those books in the Bible, are really the story about the search for a true king. And it began, you might remember, with Hannah a few weeks ago. We looked at the very beginning chapters of 1 Samuel. A barren woman, Hannah, who God miraculously gave a son who sings a song which we used as our call to worship this morning about the true king. And when she describes that king, she says that he is one who will break the bows of the mighty and will raise up the humble. In other words, the kind of king that Hannah is looking for and envisions and that the nation of Israel came to put their hope in was a king who would not accumulate power for himself, but use his power to be a blessing to his people and for the sake of others. A king who would not just be in it for himself, but who would serve. Not just lord over those he ruled, but a king, as in Psalm 72, who would work for justice, care for the poor and the needy, and bring prosperity and peace to his people. See, that's what the king, that's what a king, and that's what the king is supposed to be. Now, Samuel, who we see in this passage, who is Hannah's son, the miraculous child God gave to her, had the same vision and hope for this king. And so he anoints Saul in 1 Samuel 8 as king over Israel. We didn't read that passage. We kind of skipped over that. 
But last week we looked at Saul. And we're told here in verse 1, if you look there, that he is grieving over Saul because Saul has not turned out to be what he had hoped he would be. Saul has turned out to be just like all the other kings of the earth. (laughs) Selfish, oppressive, drunk with power. So Samuel weeps because Samuel wants what we all want. Samuel, like all of us, wants a ruler or a leader who doesn't live selfishly but lives to give away their power and influence for the good of the people that they rule over. Samuel wants what we all want. He wants a society full of people who live this way, who who make decisions not based upon what will get them reelected, but based upon what is for the good of the people. A society full of people like this who live and act kingly and take their influence and their money and their possessions and who use it to bring justice and shalom to the earth. And this story, which really introduces us to David the king, is the promise that despite, okay, despite how full society might be of people who think only of themselves, despite how devastated our world might be because of sin and selfishness, there is a true king. A king like the one Hannah sung about. And there is a way to get kingly character into people so that they live to be a blessing and bring about change for good and not just live for themselves. That's what this passage is about. And so I want to help you see three things from these verses. If you just follow along with me on the outline on your little insert there, I want to do these three things. I want to try to make a case for character that what we really need uh, and what we're looking for in a king, what the true king really exhibits and what people who live kingly really need the most is character. So I want to make a case for that for the need for character. Then secondly, I want to show you the obstacle to character here in this passage. And then thirdly, how you get it. So I want to make a case for character, show you how the obstacles to character. And then thirdly, hopefully show you a little bit about how you can get the character that you need to live kingly the way God's called you to. Okay, so first, let me just talk to you. Let me make a case for character. This scene in 1 Samuel 16, okay, is an anointing ceremony. And in the Bible, to anoint someone or something with oil, as Samuel does to David here, meant to set that thing apart for a very specific or or a very ceremonial or a very special use. So there would be holy objects that would be anointed, or there would be holy persons that would be anointed that were going to occupy a special office or a specific office of some kind, like king or prophet or priest in the service of God. And so these people would be set apart And they would be anointed. The anointing signifying the coming of the Holy Spirit, as we see here in verse 13, or the divine empowerment for the work that God had called them to. So they were anointed to to kind of symbolize that as God was calling them to a specific work, God would come in his power, and there would be a divine empowerment toward the success of the work that he's called them to. Okay? If you come to the New Testament, if we could make the bridge, bridge the gap here, in the New Testament, every believer is anointed, we're told. 2 Corinthians 1, 21. Not just kings, not just prophets, not just priests, but every person who puts their faith in Jesus. The Spirit rushes on David here in verse 13, but the teaching of the New Testament is that the Holy Spirit, this same Spirit, He dwells in us by faith. He's in us. And so each of us have a unique way that we are to act kingly, and a particular anointing, you might say, right? something that God has uniquely gifted and called us to. But what this passage is trying to teach us, I think, uh, is, is that what we need, what matters the most, what makes the difference is the kind of person you are 
in the midst of that calling. Not your talent, not your charming personality, not, but your character. The kind of person you are in the deep places of your heart. So the spiritual power that comes, right, the promise of the spirit that comes through the anointing is not so much to do with, with, your, with your charisma or your talents or your gifts as much as it is that the spiritual power comes in the renovation of the heart in producing heart change and heart character. So let me offer a summary of what I think this this passage in line with kind of the past, you know, the, the chapters that have come before and after are trying to teach us. And it's just this, that it's charisma, talent, and the gifts of the Spirit are secondary to character, to the fruits of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit are secondary to the fruit of the Spirit. But when we think of anointing, right, when, when we use that word in our circles, uh, in Christian circles, we almost always use it to refer to a person's charisma or to the power of their personality or to the, the power of the, uh, the exercise of their spiritual gifts. But what this whole narrative, Samuel, 1 Samuel 8 through 16, is trying to teach us is that spiritual gifts and personal charisma is not enough. They're secondary to deep heart character. Because remember, we didn't look at it, but if you've read this portion of the Bible, you know, Saul was anointed too. And the Spirit came rushing on him too. And he, we're told in verse 10 and 11 of chapter 10, he began to prophesy there. And so there was evidence of great spiritual power at work in Saul's life. He was even kind of, uh, he was evidencing the, the kind of spiritual gifts we often associate with being anointed. There's spiritual power at work, and yet we're told that here God's rejected him because he didn't have character. He was selfish. He was hungry for power. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon and these old guys, way back, you know, 250 years, their sermon titles are awesome. I mean, if you're, they, they are into like three and four sentence long sermon titles. It's great. But he wrote a sermon, and the title of the sermon was Charity, Love, okay, Charity More Excellent Than the Extraordinary Gifts of the Spirit. And in the sermon, he makes the, uh, the point, this, this, ar- this point, okay, he makes this argument. He says that the fruit of the Spirit, okay, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, I think I got them all, I may have missed one, take it up with me later. Okay, the fruit of the Spirit are the real sign of an experience of God's grace and not the supernatural gifts of the Spirit. See, he uses this analogy, he says that the gifts of the Spirit are like a beautiful garment or a precious jewel that beautifies the body in some way, but those things do nothing to change the inner parts of a person's life. So powerful preaching or an anointed ministry, whatever it might be, none of those things require that you be a person of substance. I mean, I wish it was true, but it's not. I mean, there are plenty of people, and make sure I'm not one of them, I don't think I am, and so ask my wife if I am, but there are plenty of men who are powerful preachers of God's words, and yet their wife and their kids can't stand them because they're mean and selfish. And yet the people who come are enamored because they're, it's just, wow. And so the real work of God, okay, the, the, the real sign of an experience of grace is not, you know, the, the way you know you're a Christian. The way you know that the truth of the gospel is penetrating into your life is not that there's evidence of these great, supernatural, extraordinary signs of the Spirit. It's that in the deep places of your heart, the gospel is beginning to penetrate And it's changing you. See, the Spirit came rushing on Saul. Just like he rushes on David in this passage. He even prophesied, but God rejected him. And we're told he went looking for another man 
a man after his own heart. And this is how David's known in the Bible, right? He is the one who's the man after God's own heart. And the phrase means something like he's one who acts like God acts or a man who does what God does or who desires what God desires or who lives for God's mission and purposes and not his own. So David has character. Now, he's not perfect, right? We know that. There's that whole incident with the woman named Bathsheba that's going to come up eventually. He's not perfect, but he has a, God, he has a heart after God's heart. He has character. Saul doesn't. And that's why God chooses him to be king. And so again, what we need to get our work done, what matters, what counts, and whatever it is you're doing, I mean, if your work, you know, if it's your work or if it's parenting your kids or if it's planting a church or if it's trying to take a city, whatever the work is that God has given you to do, the thing that will make the difference, the thing that really counts is not your talent or your gifts, but the kind of person you are. We need character. We need an experience of grace that radically alters the desires and motivational core of our hearts. We need character, not techniques, not talent, not right doctrine so much as we need hearts uh, that go after God's heart. And then all of those other things are going to take care of themselves. See, a person who has a heart after God's heart is going to have right doctrine. He's going to have the, the, the necessary talents and gifts that he needs. But we need character. So... Secondly, then, this passage not only shows us our need for character, it also shows us the obstacle to getting the kind of character we need in order to fulfill our kingly role. And it's just this. It is that we don't see the way God sees. See, this is a passage about seeing, right? If you look there, Samuel sees Eliab, and he's impressed with his stature and his physical appearance and his potential. But we're told God sees beyond just the mere external, physical God looks upon the heart. And that word see there in Hebrew, it's all over this passage. Uh, It's a word that means to look upon favorably or even to be attracted to or to prefer. It it, it is, uh, if I could give you an analogy, I was reading a little bit about this. Physical attraction, we're told that one of the signs of physical attraction is that when a man sees a woman that he finds attractive or when a woman sees a man that she finds attractive, immediately there's an increase in heart rate. So when that God sees... Samuel sees what the, what the Scripture is trying to, to get us to kind of consider is what makes your heart race. Samuel sees Eliab's strength and his appearance and his heart begins to race. But God looks at the heart. And it's the heart, it's the inner workings of the heart that causes God's heart to race. Now let's take it apart a bit, if you would. The passage offers a warning there in verses 7 and 8. That is given to Samuel, but also, I think, given to us. Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, a couple of things from this, just principles and applications I want to draw out for, for us this morning. First, uh, what, what we're being, what's being exposed to be true of us in this story is that we are attracted to physical appearance. I mean, both Jesse and Samuel just assume that Eliab would be the one God would pick because he looked the most kingly. Okay, he was handsome and tall and muscular. He was everything kings are supposed to be. And so when Samuel saw Eliab, he said, he's my man. Look at him. He looks like a king. See, man looks on outward appearances. We are attracted to physical beauty. We love a thin waist slime and muscular arms. We do. 
And this is what we value often the most, what people look like externally, the clothes they wear and the color of their hair and the height uh, and weight and their body dimension and all these things. And you can see this played out in a million different places all over our society. Consider our obsession with physical appearance. We are bombarded on a daily basis with just the need to look good, the need to be fit, the need to be skinny, the physical, all the magazines and the newspapers and the gym memberships and the plastic surgeons and all this. We have a culture of people who are obsessed with their physical appearance. And either you look good and so you feel really happy and proud about that or you look bad and, you know, and you just, you just fall apart. And if you don't believe it, watch Biggest Loser sometime. I mean, this is, this is the cultural currency we live in. It's the problem with pornography. Think about pornography with me for just a minute. Pornography deeply habituates the soul to look at things in the complete opposite way that God does. It habituates you to look at the opposite sex almost exclusively in terms of their physical appearance with no thought for their quality of, of their character. It, it trains you to think of women, men, or men, women, purely in to- terms of their physical appearance. I mean, this it kind of filters down all the way to how our culture trains us to pick a spouse. We, we train people in our culture to pick spouses the way that Samuel tries to pick a king in this passage. You know, question number one, is she hot? Right? Does he have six-pack abs? I mean, I, I thought about this, when, and, I, and I'm probably guilty of this, but when men boast, when I hear men, even the men that I hang out with in this church, when I hear men boast about their wives, it seems like the only boast that counts anymore is the Ricky Bobby prayer, I thank you, God, for my smoking hot wife. Right? And that's the only thing that counts. I mean, that, that's, the only, that's the only compliment men can come up with anymore. And I don't, very rarely do you hear a man boast about their wives and it not be in reference to their physical appearance. Why? What are we teaching our daughters is the most important thing. See, we are are obsessed and attracted to physical appearance. But we're also attracted to charisma and gifts and abilities. We're enamored with people who are powerful and talented and charismatic. We love hype. And this is the other part of the mistake Samuel makes. He looks at Eliab, and at this time, to be big and strong when most people were small was, seemed like a, was, was seen as, as almost a talent. And so Eliab is strong, and he's big, and he has all of the qualifications to fulfill the job description. He's the firstborn. I mean, he is, he's obviously the one that God has chosen because, I mean, look at him. He had all the gifts, all of the things he needed to get the work done. And by the way, this was the appeal, the appeal to Saul, too. He's described in 1 Samuel 9, too, like this. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. See, that's, that's the kind of guy you want to be king. Right? Israel wanted a strong king to lead them in battle, and Saul was their man. And the problem is, if you go to places like 1 Corinthians 13, 
where Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, he says, you can be the kind of person who through the working of, of God's spirit, you can speak in the tongues of men and angels. You can say to a mountain, move, and it will move. You can feed the hungry and give your, all of your money away to the poor. But if at the core of your life, if you're doing all of those things, and there's not character, you're not motivated by love, you know, there's not, in other words, nothing really is happening on the inside. You just are all these massive displays of all this great stuff you're doing. He says you're nothing. See, but we, we are attracted to physical appearance, and we're obsessed with it. We're attracted to charisma and gifts and abilities, and we're obsessed with it. We choose churches based upon the charisma of the preachers. I mean, we do all, I mean, just tons of ways that these things get fleshed out in our, in our lives. But God doesn't see the way we see, and he doesn't choose Eliab or any of the other brothers. Now, why? And the answer that is given to us in this passage is that he does not look on appearance or stature. Physical beauty is not attractive to him. He's not impressed with talent or intelligence. God sees in a completely different way than we see. He looks upon the heart, verse 7. Heart character is what makes God's heart race. Now, there's an odd but very important verse in 1 Peter 3 where Peter instructs Christian women that they should not try to uh, not try for physical beauty. They, should, they shouldn't, he says, adorn the external. In other words, spend lots of time fix, fixing their hair and assembling a wardrobe or having just the right accessories, you know, for the occasion or whatever it might be. Instead, they should work hard to beautify their interior lives. And th- these are his words. He says, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight very precious. It's really interesting because the word in that passage that gets translated adorn is the Greek word cosmos, or the word that is used for the universe that God has ordered and created and made beautiful. In other words, Peter says, don't spend all of your energy, don't order your life around the goal of being beautiful on the outside. Don't make that your cosmos, because if you do, you're putting all of that work and effort into nothing. It's foolish to spend all of your time trying to beautify your physical body and neglecting your soul because the body eventually falls apart, okay? I hate to break. If I've got to be the bearer of bad news, it will sag, it will wrinkle, it will weaken. But your soul goes on forever. So what Peter's saying, and I think what this passage is saying, is make work to make your soul as beautifully adorned as it possibly can be because God looks on the heart. He's attracted to heart character. What's beautiful to him there in First Peter is a gentle and quiet spirit. That's what matters. That's the kind of person that catches his eye. Somebody who doesn't have to make a big deal about themselves. Somebody who's content to go unnoticed. Just gentle and humble and quiet. And you see the obstacle to developing the kind of character that will make us kingly is that we are naturally drawn to and enamored by the exterior. We are attracted and obsessed with external beauty and gifts, and charisma. And so we spend all of our time at the gym trying to get or keep physical beauty, and we neglect the habits and disciplines that beautify the soul. This is epidemic in the church. And we do it because we don't see how God sees. We don't value what he values. And so thirdly then, if that is the case for character, and that is the obstacle to it, then I would not be a good friend if I left us without talking for a few minutes about how you can get it, or the solution to it. And the answer that's found in this passage is there's one way to get the kind of character, heart, radical, heart, transformation, 
character that we're talking about this morning, and that is that you have to look at the forgotten son. Now, what happens in this story? God is looking for a king that would lead his people and carry out his mission in the world because Saul's failed. We looked at that last week. And so he sends Samuel to Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse, who, by the way, if you know your biblical history, Jesse is the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. Okay? Because he's chosen one of Jesse's sons to be Israel's king. Jesse has eight sons. He parades seven of them in front of Samuel. And so, of course, Samuel thinks that that, that, that must be all of the sons, and yet God didn't choose any of them. So there's confusion here. And so he asks, verse 7, if there are any more. And Jesse answers, yes, there is one more, the youngest. And wasn't it great? I mean, it was great. Did you hear when, I mean, Ashley, I told Ashley five minutes before she read this morning that she was going to read because I'm a terrible husband and she has to do the thing because, you know, it's kind of, nobody else can do this. Help. And so she does these things. But did you catch when she read, uh, where was she? She read, is there any more? And Jesse said, um, well, you know, there, there is the one that's out with the sheep. And you could almost hear, she even inflected, like, well, you know, yeah, there is that young guy out there, the one that's kind of still out there. It was marvelous. Because it's exactly what's happening here. I mean, Samuel asks, are there any more? And Jesse says, well, yeah, there, there is, there's the, the youngest. And the Hebrew word there means much more than the youngest. It really is, yeah, well, there's, there's the runt. The youngest. I mean, the most inconsequential. I mean, think about this. Think about this. The, the, the prophet in Israel comes to your house because he says there's going to be a king that comes from your sons, and you don't even invite one of them to the dinner. I mean, they don't even think enough of David to invite him to be there. It can't poss- he cannot possibly be the one that God would choose. There's no scenario in which he is the one that, that Samuel's come looking for. Everything in this, this story points uh, to that, that, that Sam- Jesse has seven sons, the number of perfection, right? And David's the eighth, which he's the oddball out. And yet, despite all of those things, it's David that God chooses. And there's something that's being revealed here to us about the way God works. Because in the ancient world, it was the firstborn son that was the heir. The firstborn son. I'm a firstborn son. Uh, my, dad, my dad's not yet caught this theological vision, so you need to pray for him. I say this all the time. Because the firstborn son is given a double, double portion of the inheritance and all these things. He's not here this morning, but I keep trying to disciple him in that. He's not listening very well. Right? But in this day, the firstborn son was the heir. He was the one to whom all of it all passed. And so he should have been God's choice. I mean, look, Samuel saw him and said, man, that surely the Lord's anointed is right here. And yet, he wasn't. David the runt was. So what we see is God passed over the most qualified and chose the least qualified. And in every place in the Bible where God works, I mean, every place, without exception, every place in the Bible where God steps in and begins to work, he works against the world, world's values. I mean, it's always the younger son that it's chosen. It's Abel, not Cain. It's Isaac, not Ishmael. It's Jacob, not Esau. It's Joseph, not any of his older brothers. Or it's the barren one, as we saw a few weeks ago. It's Sarah, not Hagar. It's, it's Hannah, not Penina. I mean, what? So everywhere you look in the Bible, this is what happens. The most qualified one is passed over and the least qualified one is brought in. And, and this is what Paul's meditating on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which is why I include it as an assurance of pardon. He says the way it works, the way the gospel works, is not many wise, not the powerful, not those of noble birth, but the foolish and the weak and the low and the despised. 
God passes over the qualified and chooses the unqualified. He works not in spite of their weakness. He works in them because of their weakness and their foolishness. And so you just you come to stories like this and you say, you know, why does God do it this way? Why does he always consistently work against the cultural values that way? Why the runt and not the firstborn? Why the barren woman and not the fertile wife? And the answer is right there in 1 Corinthians 1, if you want to look. God says it's not the wise and not the powerful and not those of noble birth, but the foolish and the weak and the low and the despised, so that, purpose clause, why? This is the purpose, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean? See, Paul says that we're prone to boasting. We boast about our social status or our intelligence or our spiritual resume or whatever it might be. We look to those things to save us. We try to turn them into a righteousness. In other words, they become ways of our trying to beautify ourselves. And the reason we put so much emphasis on these outward things is because there's a profound emptiness inwardly. We're empty on the inside. We're inwardly, we're profoundly insecure. And so we're constantly looking for something to fill up the emptiness, something to make us feel good about ourselves. And so we turn to physical beauty or, or social status or job success or moral accomplishments, and we turn those things into boasts. They become adornments. We try to adorn ourselves with them. We try to beautify ourselves with these things. And that's why God works so deliberately to subvert our value systems because big muscles don't get you anywhere with God. Talent doesn't count with him. Salvation doesn't work that way. It's, salvation doesn't come to those who've beautified themselves. Salvation comes to the, to the ugly. It's grace. It's because of him, Paul says. It's because of what he has done. It's because of his love. It's because of his work that you're in Christ Jesus. Not anything you've done. Paul says the weak are chosen, not the powerful. And the nobodies are included, not the somebodies, because... Powerful people tend to make their power a boast. And somebodies tend to make their talent or their success or whatever it may be a boast. It becomes their righteousness. It becomes their beauty. And what God is trying to drill into our hearts is those things can't save you. They can't make you beautiful. Not in God's eyes. And so what we learn is that all of our troubles and struggles and obedience are there because we're doing this. I mean, the reason... The reason it doesn't work to, to have a just do it sermon, right? Just get out there and get it done is because it's not enough to just go do good things. We need a changed heart because if we don't have a changed heart, when we go out there and begin to do things, we'll be doing them to try to beautify ourselves and not resting in what God has already done to make us beautiful. You see, see, there's a sin underneath every sin, And it's the sin of unbelief. It's the sin of not resting in Jesus, not trying to find a boast, trying to find something, whatever it may be, academic success, kids that obey, you know, whatever it might be, to find some boast, some way of beautifying ourselves. And it's that pursuit that creates all of the dysfunction that is the sin underneath every other sin. And so if you think about the places where you struggle to have character, maybe you struggle with lying like I do or cheating. Like one, I, one particular of my children really struggles with cheating if we ever play games. Well, why? Why do you lie? Why do you cheat? Well, the reason most people lie, the reason I lie is because I'm, I'm scared to death of the disapproval of other people. 
And so I'll tell them whatever they want to hear. Because that way they, they'll still like me. It's the same for cheating. Most people, and this is true of the child that I'm thinking of in particular, they cheat because they're afraid of failure. They can't finish second. They have to finish first. And so if the root of your sinful behaviors, you know, the, what's, what's being exposed there is the root of your sinful behavior in those things is insecurity. I, I, I need people to approve of me. I need to prove that I can finish first, not second. But it's to say, why do you overwork? Why do you overspend? You know, if, if you overwork or if you overspend, then if you look deep enough, you'll see you're still trying to beautify yourself instead of looking to Jesus to beautify you. And so whatever it may be, if you trace the root of your sinful behavior back down to the foundational core, it will be something like fear of disapproval or fear of failure or insecurity or you're just empty on the inside and so you're looking for something to try to make you beautiful. And you can't just decide you're going to be good. <laughs> that worked that way. You've got to deal with your fear and insecurity because character is about the most motivational core of your heart and not just external behaviors. Remember 1 Corinthians 13. If you have not love, but you speak in the tongues of men and angels, if you have not love, in other words, if your heart has not been radically changed by the gospel and yet you give all of your money away to the poor, God says that doesn't count for anything. Because you're, 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 whatever money you may be giving, you're not doing it out of gratitude for what God has done. You're doing it to try to make yourself beautiful in his sight. So it's about you. So you have to have the core motivations and desires of your heart changed. That's how you get character. But practically, how does that happen? And this is what I want to finish with. If you want character, you have to have an experience of grace. In other words, the love and the grace of God has to come into your heart and fill up the emptiness. You have to have God's love and acceptance come in and overcome your insecurity. And that's the reason it is David and not Eliab. That's the reason it's Jacob, not Esau, Hannah, not Penina, and Sarah, not Hagar. It's because what the scripture is trying to teach us from beginning to end is that salvation is by grace. Salvation comes not to the most qualified. It comes to the least qualified because it's not a matter of what you do. It's because of him you're in Christ Jesus. We are loved and accepted, not because we can squeeze into slim-fit jeans. But because God has put his love on us in Christ Jesus, even though, like David, we were the least likely candidate for it because of our sin. Now, do you know that? Do you know that? Has that truth come home to your heart? Have you had a genuine experience of the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ? See, the passage... It's pointing us to the gospel. And you see that where Samuel says of Eliab, surely this is the Lord's anointed. And that Hebrew word anointed is the Hebrew word that was translated in the Septuagint to the Greek word that is the word for Christ, the Christos. Surely this is the Lord's Christos. Hmm, isn't that interesting? And so you see this passage is really just a, a way to get to the truth of the gospel. And what do I mean by that? Well, let me just... Let me read uh, what another pastor, Tim Keller, who's in New York City, because he says it better than I ever could, and I need to give him credit for it. But he says, there was another child in Bethlehem who was not allowed in but kept out with the sheep. And there was another one who was not just forgotten by his father but forsaken by his father. You see the most beautiful and brilliant and gorgeous person in the universe, Jesus Christ, lost his physical attractiveness, Isaiah 53. So that we, though being spiritually and sightly, could become beautiful in the eyes of God. See, there's only one thing that's going to change your inner motivation 
of your heart. You have to know that the most beautiful being in the universe willingly became ugly to make you beautiful. The most powerful being in the universe became nothing, not just a runt like David, okay? Nothing. And then and only then are you going to be free to see as God sees. Because if you know, if you know that because of the work of Christ, God already loves and accepts you, then you can enjoy whatever physical beauty or talent or success he has given to you and not try to make those things your boast. And that will free you to really be able to begin to pursue what really matters. Not beauty by way of outward adornment that will, despite all of your efforts, eventually wear out, but the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great value in the eyes of God. Now let me just close with this illustration. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, which is a book about heaven, and it really is uh, pretty um, fantastic. The narrator, who's being given a tour of heaven, he tells about seeing a parade uh, in heaven, and it is all that he can, it's all in honor of this woman who, in his words, it's, it's fascinating, he says, this woman is blindingly, she is just unbearably beautiful. He, she's so beautiful, he, he has to avert his gaze because of the brilliance of her glory. And the narrator wonders who she is, and when he asks his guide answers, it's someone you've never heard of. <laughs> her name on earth was Sarah Smith, and she lived at Golders Green. And the narrator says, she seems to be, well, a person of particular importance. I, said his guide, she is one of the great ones. You have heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two quite different things. Well, she must have had a huge family. Look at all the people with her. Are they her sons and daughters? No, she had none. Well, then who are these, he asks. And this is the narrator's, or this is the guide's answer. He said, every young man or boy that met her became her son, even if it was only the boy that brought meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Everyone that came near her had his or her place in her love. In her, they became themselves. And now, the abundance of life she has in Christ from the Father flows into them. It's like when you throw a stone into a pool and concentric waves spread out further and further. Who knows where it'll end? Listen to this statement. He says, already there is joy enough in the little finger of a great saint like her to waken all the dead things of the universe into life. Tim Keller, again, uh, in preaching on this, in light of, he, he uses as an illustration as well, and he says, in light of that, even, he says, even if you could be the supermodel, it's temporary, it's over, it's not real, it's not who you are. Even if you could be the supermodel, if only for a moment, don't try to be a supermodel, be Sarah Smith from Golders Green, and then you'll be that forever. But in order for, God, in order for us to really begin to pursue what really matters in the eyes of God, as we've said, it takes uh, the knowledge of his love being set upon us in Jesus Christ. And so as we continue to worship together this morning and as we sing in just a minute, uh, we're going to sing a song of faith and repentance where we say, Jesus, I come to you. I'm coming to you out of my darkness, out of my despair. I'm coming to you. And so as we sing this song, let's pray that God would increase our faith in the gospel so that he might do this great work in our hearts. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we marvel at the truth of the gospel that you who were um, the most beautiful became ugly. (laughs) And all of us, all of us in this room carry around a secret desire to be beautiful. We want to be beautiful. We want people to, to look upon our beauty and stand amazed at us. And yet you, who were the most beautiful, did not... Uh, did not consider your beauty something to be held on to, but you willingly gave it up to become ugly that we might be made beautiful. And you who were great, 
did not consider your greatness something that, that was worth holding on to, but you became nothing in order to make us great. We confess to you how little faith we have in that truth because we are still all of our lives going around trying to make ourselves great and trying to win a beauty for ourselves. And it's just ruining our lives. It's ruining our relationships. And so would you come and would you, would you even this morning convince us of the truth of your love for us that all of our boasting might cease, that our mouths might be shut. And then we might truly come to delight in and rest in you. Because only then will we, be, will we become the kind of people that can live in the world kingly. Uh, that you could use to further your kingdom and to bear fruit that would be to your glory. But that's our desire. And so we pray you come and do these things and, and, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
uh, if we truly set our hearts on the goal of God coming into our lives and producing character in us, uh, then I need to warn you what that means. That when the Spirit came rushing upon David, uh, he, he sent him into a time of incredible suffering and, and temptation and trial. In the same way that when the Spirit came rushing upon Jesus after his baptism in the Gospels, he immediately drove him, we're told, out into the wilderness to have a showdown with Satan. Now, the way, from cover to cover, the Bible talks about God creating character in his people as he does it by taking them through times of suffering. And I don't know what that means for me, I don't know what that means for you, but I do know that if we really begin to pray that God would produce character in us, it's going to mean we learn that through suffering. And the way you go into suffering courageous for the sake of the beauty of what God will do in your life on the other side of it is you go in knowing that no matter what comes, what happens, as Paul says in Romans 8, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And that is the promise, well there you go, that is the promise of the benediction. Okay, that is the promise of the song that we just sang. Uh, that his love is greater than we can ever imagine. And so rest in it. Uh, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, then receive this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.